Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church, and it's a privilege to welcome all of you, old and new faces. Uh, I hope you guys came here this morning uh, ready to hear from the Lord. Uh, He is present with us. He's in us. He's also among us because the church is gathering this morning. So our prayer is that he's already begun to work on your hearts and already began to speak to you as you prepared to get here, as you got the kids dressed, as you ate, ate breakfast, got in the car, and, and even dealt with some personal sin or some, just some sin in the, in, the, in the morning that God has worked already in your life. So we're, we're trusting that he's active in, in your, in, in, at work in your life. Let me ask you guys to stand with us. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing together after a call to worship. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, Words are are so limited to describe how good you are, how much of a good father you are, how gracious you are, how merciful you are. But God, we know those things. Words may not be able to describe them fully, but we know them to be true because you've revealed them to us. You've shown yourself to us and you've shown us our need for you. Our greatest need was the sin that we were born into And then you took care of that by sending Jesus to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on a cross, and to be raised from the grave, forever destroying the power of sin and death. But God, there are other needs that we have this morning, needs that that we're clinging to, needs that we're, we're clinging to things that don't last, we're clinging to ideas, we're clinging to stuff. We're clinging to some false identity. Help us this morning to know our need. Bring us to that point where we need you above all those other things. God, we trust that you are going to work among your people because you tell us you do. You're not a dormant God. You're not a muted God. You are an active and alive God. Alive in our lives, alive in our hearts, and alive in this family this morning. So we trust that you will work, and we ask you to have your will among your people this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would look to the screens with me uh, at a call to worship from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. I ask you to sing out with me this morning. If you would, bow your head with me. Heavenly, merciful God, you are so good. Your love is unfathomable. We thank you for this time to come together to worship you, worship you with our whole hearts, to set aside our thoughts of feeling insecure about our voices or or anything like that. God, we want to worship you with our whole hearts, our whole bodies, our whole voice. But God, we come before you today 
thanking you for your mercy, for your son, Jesus, as he has died for us in our sins. And God, we just ask that if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, God, that they would come to know you today. Not through our singing, not through our instruments, but through your word, through, through your spirit, God. In your name I pray, amen. If you'd look to the screens with me at 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, and we keep his commandments. We're going to sing a new song this morning, and it talks about living with praise all the time, endlessly, and lifting up your voice to him. you would be seated. Kids, you are dismissed. It's now time for the kids' story. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jessica, and there's some of you I haven't met yet, so I'd love to, I'd love to get to know you guys. I think I've met most of the kids, and I'm really excited just to be back with you. Um, I am reading a story today that is really weird. It's a little bit gross, and it's pretty terrifying. So if you need to hold your mama's hand or something, just feel free, okay? The Bible has some stories that are kind of strange, but they're always beautiful because it tells us how much God loves us and will sacrifice to reach us. So this one's called God's Messenger. God had a job for Jonah, but Jonah didn't want it. Go to Nineveh, God said, and tell your worst enemies that I love them. No, said Jonah. Is that a good idea? That going to work out for him? Is that a good idea to say no to God? It gets worse. He said, those are bad people doing bad things. Exactly, said God. They have run far away from me, but I can't stop loving them. I will give them a new start. I will forgive them. No, said Jonah. They don't deserve it. I'll run away from God, Jonah said to himself. Does that sound like a good idea? Can't run away from God. Crazy kid. Far away. So far away that God won't be able to find me. Then I won't have to do what God says. It's a good plan, he said. Because as far as he knew, it was a good plan. But, of course, it wasn't a good plan at all. It was a silly plan. Because you can't run away from God. He will always come and find you. 
Jonah went ahead with his not very good plan. One ticket to anywhere but Nineveh, please. One ticket to not Nineveh, please, he said, and he boarded a boat sailing in the very opposite direction of Nineveh. You might know this story doesn't go well. It wasn't long before a fierce wind blew and the boat started to lurch and pitch and roll and everyone started turning green and getting sick. Jonah sat bolt upright in his bed. You see, the first thing that went wrong with Jonah's not very good plan was that God sent a big storm after him because he loved them. Couldn't sail their ship properly. We're sinking, they screamed, and they started throwing things overboard, suitcases, food, whatever they could find. But by now, Jonah knew that the storm was his fault. Throw me in instead, he shouted to the sailors, and the storm will stop. The sailors weren't sure. It's the only way you can be saved, Jonah cried. And so, one, can you count with me? Two, three, splash. And no sooner had Jonah hit the water than the waves grew calm. The wind died down and the storm stopped. Just then, Jonah thought it was all over when he was sure he was going to drown. But God sent a big fish to rescue him. The fish swallowed Jonah whole with one gulp. Jonah must have thought he had died. It was so dark in there like a tomb. But then he smelled the rotting food and felt the slimy seaweed, and he knew he wasn't dead. He was in the belly of a big fish. Sitting there in the darkness for three whole days, Jonah had plenty of time to think. Pretty soon he realized his plan, well, a very silly plan indeed. He was sorry for running away, and he prayed to God. You can pray to God anywhere, even when you make a mistake, and even in the middle of a fish in the middle of an ocean. So he prayed to God from inside the great fish and asked God to forgive him. What do you think God did? After three days, the fish spat Jonah safely onto a sandy beach. Just then, Jonah heard someone calling his name. Jonah, go to Nineveh, God said. And this time, Jonah said, yes. And he went straight to Nineveh and told everyone God's wonderful message. Even though you've run far from God, he can't stop loving you. Jonah told them, run to him so he can forgive you. The people of Nineveh listened to Jonah, and they started loving God, and they learned to do what God said and stop running away from him, just like Jonah had. Many years later, God is going to send another messenger with the same wonderful message. Like Jonah, he would spend three days in utter darkness, but this messenger would be God's own son, He would be called the Word because he himself would be God's message. God's message translated into our own language, everything God wanted to say to the whole world in a person. Father, we thank you for this story, the story of Jonah, the story of Nineveh, but God, really the story of uh, repentance and grace. And God, we pray that uh, as we look into your Word, 
God, this story is much like the story that we're going to look at today. And so, Father, we pray that you would show us how you desire to move in our hearts, how much you love us, and uh, how much you want to show us how to really live through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. It's good to be with you guys. I'm Brad, if we haven't met, one of the elders here. And uh, grateful to be able to worship with you. We're in a series entitled, Follow Me, Learning How to Be with Jesus. And some people would say that this series is really simple, uh, really practical. Some might even say that it's a little basic. And what we have discovered is that oftentimes there are things that we miss out on in life. Simple things, seemingly, like... Maybe learning to swim or learning to ride a bike or learning how to whistle or learning how to blow bubbles with bubble gum. And I can't whistle. Anybody else can't whistle? I mean, all I've got is kind of like a... See, I, I can't even get it out. And I don't really know what I would do with a whistle. I mean, I guess I could whistle at my wife and annoy my kids. That would probably be the main thing that I would do with a whistle. But it's kind of... Exactly. Exactly. But it's one of those things It's like, man, eh, no big deal. You know, I'm around people who can whistle, so if I need anybody to whistle, I'll get them to whistle for me. And I think we think that a lot in the church. Like, I'm around people who know how to share their faith, and I think I know how to share my faith. I don't really ever do it, but if I did, I think I've heard it done enough. I think I could do it, or I could at least ask someone else to do it. But faith doesn't work like that. So all this month, we're looking at life in the Spirit and how really the Holy Spirit enables us to follow Jesus. And that makes all the difference. How the Holy Spirit enables us to have a daily conversational relationship with God. So that we actually are following Jesus and living life with Him. Today's message, I, I want to talk to you about one word that it, if you miss out on this one word in the Christian life, you will miss out on following Jesus. In fact, without this one word, it is impossible. I don't know if you've ever done things out of order before and discovered just uh, how detrimental that can be. One year, we bought a trampoline for our kids, and it was about this time of the year. Um, it was the last day of school, and Katie and I had some time, and we had hidden this trampoline, and we were going to put this trampoline together while the kids were at school. No big deal, right? Couldn't take more than eh, an hour or two. I mean, I have tools, and I know what I'm doing. And so, we glanced at the directions, and one thing I noticed about the directions that was really annoying was it said that you needed to do opposite corners of the trampoline mat. But that would, that would be like counting like 64 little springs around and all the little holes that they attach. It was just going to take too long. And so we said, eh, we'll just go every other and we'll figure it out. We'll be able to get it done. It's no big deal. Well, we came to discover about halfway around that we couldn't stretch the mat anymore. <laughs> we came to discover that we had wasted a lot of time by not reading the instructions and following them. And that we were not going to get this trampoline put together. And the Christian life is a lot like that. There is one word that if you do not follow Jesus' message, you will not live the Christian life. And this one word is the message that John the Baptist preached. As he prepared the way for Jesus, this one word was his message. 
it was the one word that Jesus preached as he came and he preached his first sermon. It was the one word that even Peter preached when 3,000 people were baptized at Pentecost and the church was born. It is the one word that Paul preached in every message as he planted churches uh, all across the place, whether it was in Ephesus or Colossae, or it was always this word. And if you ask Christians, what is one word that kind of sums up Jesus' life and the theme of the Bible, oftentimes they will say, not the word that I'm going to preach about today. They'll say it's love. Or they'll say it's grace. And while that's true, you'll never get to love and grace if you don't begin with this word. And the word is repentance. Repentance. Over and over again, Jesus came preaching repentance. And we could look at so many texts throughout the Bible that talk about repentance is how we come to know God. And repentance is how we continue to follow God. There's no other way. And what that means is that the same joy that we experience when we come to know God for the first time, the only way to continue in that joy is to live a life of daily repentance. And so if you would, I want you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to a very familiar passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 6. If you've grown up attending church, you know this passage well, you know where we're already going. Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't know where Isaiah is, open the middle of your Bible, find Psalms, go write Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. And so Isaiah chapter 6, while you're turning there, I had all this build up for the word repentance. And so I don't want to go very far without giving you a definition of what repentance is. Repentance is a military term. Anyone who has served time in the military knows that repentance is about face. It's a military term. And about face means that if you are moving in one direction, about face means that you turn in the opposite direction. And so repentance... Is simply that we are pursuing sin and the flesh and the world. And that we are trying to seek happiness on our own. Men and women all throughout the world. We're born in sin and we're born on this happiness quest. Everyone's life is lived in the same way on the same path. We're all looking for happiness in one way or another. We might try to find it through all different types of ways. Maybe we volunteer a lot. Maybe we have a great career where we give back. Maybe we have uh, nice things. Maybe we invest all of our time and energy in our kids. There are so many ways that we can attempt to find happiness, but everyone's on a happiness quest. And along the way, they discover, if we meet Jesus, that what we sang in that song, that there's nothing better than Jesus right now. And Jesus calls us To turn and repent. And that's what we see in Isaiah today. Really quick before we look at Isaiah. I don't want to lose some of y'all. Some of you when I said repentance. You instantly checked out and said I've done that. And I want you to realize. That if you grew up in a church. Where repentance was all about. You know uh, walking down an aisle. And coming to know Jesus. Or surrendering your life to him. That is repentance, but that is the very first step of repentance that continues throughout our life. Martin Luther, when the Reformation began, when he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, the first of those 95 Thesis was that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life to be one of 
repentance. You say, how do we know that? We'll just simply look at the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, 12, if you back up, it seems like it's a prayer that we would pray daily because he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. So it seems like it's kind of like a daily thing. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So it seems like repentance is something that we pursue on a daily basis. And I know that it's necessary because Peter would write in 1 Peter 1.16, You shall be holy for I am holy. So how are you going to be holy apart from repentance? We're going to get to that in a minute. Now all of this sounds good, right? If, if, if you've heard all of this and you've grown up in church, you're like, hey, this all sounds good, but there's, there's no new information here for me. But there is. The question is, are you following Jesus in the gospel? And are you pursuing him through gospel repentance on a daily basis? Or have you gotten caught up in religion? And has the church taught you to pursue Jesus through religious repentance? Which isn't repentance at all. I'm going to borrow some of Jack Miller's ideas this morning. And, and Jack Miller... Uh, he started World Harvest Mission, um, very influential guy, read his biography this last year. Um, cheer up, I recommend it to you. Um, Jack Miller was the first pastor to use the words gospel-centered back in the 80s when no one was using this term. Uh, he sent out Tim Keller to plant Redeemer Church. God's used Jack Miller in amazing ways. He's passed away now. But he wrote a little book. It wasn't even a book. He just wrote um, an essay on repentance. And he describes the way in which for most of us, the church has taught us not gospel repentance, but instead religious repentance, which he describes more as just penance. And we're going to look at that this morning. Let's jump into Isaiah 6. Isaiah is going to help us see what true gospel repentance looks like. We're going to do a quick summary read of this. We're not going to spend a ton of time in it. And then I want to just end today looking at the difference between religious repentance and gospel repentance. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresh threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. King James Version says, I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. 
Isaiah prophesied about 700 years before Jesus was born. And if you look at the immediate context of, of this passage, there's a crisis that's taking place. Uzziah, who had reigned uh, for, he began reigning at the age of 16, and he had reigned for over five decades. And so he's probably the only king that Isaiah has ever known. And in this day and time, the king was responsible for the stability and the well-being of the nation. And so for us to try to understand what Isaiah is feeling at this moment in time, think back to the stories that you hear from your parents or your grandparents as they describe remembering where they were when JFK was assassinated. Or where they stood, where they were when Martin Luther King was shot. Or where they stood, and maybe you remember where you were when 9-11 happened. You begin to get a very small taste, but yet again, just a small taste of what they were feeling like. Because the king, in this day and time, was responsible for the safety and security of the land. And so, the king, in, in all, of, all of his uh, authority and power, when he's gone, he leaves the nation in a very precarious place. Outside enemies would instantly try to seek control. And in the midst of that, we see three things that happen. I'll go ahead and give them to you. First, Isaiah sees God in verses 1 through 4. And when he sees a clear picture of God, it causes him to see himself. So first, Isaiah sees God. As a result, he sees himself. And then finally, after seeing himself and moving toward God in repentance, he sees a world in need. Let's look at this really quick. In verse 1, we see this crisis, this uncertainty. And in the midst of that, Isaiah sees the pre-incarnate Jesus who appears to him. John 12 verse 41 tells us that. And he's sitting on a throne and he is high and lifted up. He's in a place of power and prominence. And there is no mistaking the fact that he is king and that he has a different perspective. A perspective outside of time. That he has different authority. That he is in a different place. Isaiah says that just the hem of his robe fills the temple. Just the hem of his robe. So imagine the vastness. How he is beyond measure. He is ruler. And Isaiah is overwhelmed. As he sees this vision, he also sees seraphim who are flying these creatures. Seraphim means flames. They're covered with six wings. So there's these remarkable kind of superhuman creatures. And as remarkable as they are, yet even they are humbled in the presence of God. You see that picture? Even they, as remarkable as these creatures are, cover their eyes in the presence of God. They cover their feet so that their feet might not be uncovered before God. They're, this is a holy place. They use their wings to fly. It's flaming creatures. And as they cry out, holy, 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 it points to the absolute moral purity and separateness above the creation. But it also points to yet the anticipation of God's manifest presence that's going to fill the earth. 
And we see that, we see that um, actually result in, in Jesus, in, in John 1, in, in verse 14, in the Word made flesh. And so Isaiah sees this picture of God, and he is overwhelmed. I don't know if you've ever been overwhelmed in the presence of God before. Isaiah sees a picture of God, and instantly he sees himself as a result. In verses 5 through 7, look at what he says. Woe is me, for I am lost, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In comparison to God, Isaiah sees that his lips are unclean. We don't know exactly what that means. I've studied this passage a lot. This is one of the very first messages that I wrote. I don't know, 20, over 20 years ago. And um, we don't know if Isaiah had been called to be a prophet years earlier and was failing to declare the words of the Lord. We don't know if Isaiah just there in the presence of God became aware of how much he was more like the culture and more like the people around him than he was like God. We don't know if he was just overwhelmed with God's presence and realized that the thing that he had known and discovered about God, that he, was no, that he wasn't declaring the goodness of God to the people that God had sent him to. But in the midst of that, what does Isaiah do? He repents. He declares in verse 5, I am lost. Isn't that interesting? When you come to the end of yourself, when you find yourself in the presence of God, when you see God for who He is, and when you discover just how ugly your sin is, how do you respond? Isaiah repents. He says, I'm lost. He doesn't try to work harder. Notice he doesn't say, I'm lost. I've got to start having a quiet time. Notice he doesn't say, I'm lost. I've got to start attending church again. Those things are important. But those things will never enable us to be forgiven. They'll never enable us to be connected to God. He says, I'm lost. He gives up. He doesn't begin to make promises. He doesn't say, I'm going to change. He realizes that he can't change. That he is lost. Have you ever been lost before? Like when you're really lost, like some of you think you've been lost before. You're not lost if you're still searching. You're not lost if you're still driving around. You're not lost if you're saying, I think it's that way. I've gone that way. I think I'm... You're lost. That's lost. I'm done. Got no more choices. Tried everything. Done. There's nothing I can do. And you're like this. Surrender. 
That's the place that Isaiah is at in this passage. And he comes to God in his lostness. And Isaiah does nothing. Look, who does the work? God does the work. God sends a seraphim with a burning coal to touch his lips. He grants forgiveness. The coal comes from the sacrifice that's burning on the altar. Even this points to Jesus, who is our ultimate sacrifice, who who died as the perfect God-man on the cross for you and for me, in order that He would be judged for all who are sinners and all who declare, we're lost, God. We're in need of you. To all who surrender. And as a result of that, Isaiah is forgiven And his heart is transformed. Something takes place in Isaiah where whatever was shut down before in his life, whatever caused him to see his uncleanness, and and something was not taking place in his life, something becomes activated within him. And God, look at at verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Aren't those beautiful words? Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Meaning, you don't have to feel guilty anymore. Because your guilt has been taken away. And even in the moments where you still feel guilty, your sin has been atoned for, meaning you have been declared righteous, and you can go back and say, even though I feel guilty, I'm not guilty because my sin has been atoned for. Can you imagine what that feels like? That's the power that God has to grant forgiveness in our lives. Now look at how Isaiah responds in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Look at Isaiah's response. Isaiah saw a world in need. Isaiah is motivated to follow God in faith. To be a prophet. To declare a word of warning to a people that God describes as deaf and blind. Isn't that interesting? The book of Isaiah is a tough read. Because if you go on and just begin to read in verses 9 and 10, it gets really, God doesn't have really good things to say about the people that Isaiah is going to prophesy to. He has some promises for them, but he says that you guys are not going to follow after me, and so I'll use Cyrus and I'll use others who will bring you back to me, but that you'll go into captivity, that all kind of bad things are going to happen. And so Isaiah volunteers to declare this prophetic word of warning that, that it's kind of doom and gloom is going to come. You're not going to follow after God. What we see in, our, in this example of Isaiah is that it's impossible to encounter God in repentance and be transformed by His grace and then withhold that same grace from others. We talk about this all the time in our discipleship group. Matthew 10, 8. Uh, freely receive, freely give. 
It's impossible to freely receive from God His grace and His forgiveness and then not to turn around and freely to give that to others. And that's, that's what we see is activated in Isaiah's life. It, it's not this moment in which he's like, I, there's all these things that I need to do. No, he's volunteering. I think this is one of the biggest problems in the church in America and this is not in my notes, so I'm going to be really, really brief. If I go more than like a minute, somebody start waving at me. So, the problem of the church in America is that we don't give people the ministry that God has given them, which is to make disciples. We teach them that the church is called to do that, and then we tell them that the building is the church. And so they go, well, I don't have to make disciples. But if you're the church, and God has sent you out to make disciples, then here's the deal. You have a ministry. You have a ministry that God has given you and that it's not about me motivating you or the elders motivating you. No, it's about us equipping you. And so whether you leave this church and go to another church, it doesn't matter. God's given you a ministry. And that's exactly what we see in Isaiah's life is he's jumping up and down. God! God right here is me! God, me! Can you imagine what would happen to the church in America today if we planted churches all across the United States and there were Christians who were like Isaiah who had seen God and that they began to see, God, choose me. Do you have any idea if we came to understand that God has given us a ministry, what would be activated all across our land? It would be revival. And that God would move across the world. That's what we're praying for. But you see that in Isaiah's life. He's saying, choose me, God. You know, when we see God for who He is, and we are overwhelmed by His grace, we should be as excited to tell our friends about Him as we are about the best restaurant that we just posted about on Instagram last week. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Or the best movie that we just saw. Do you have any problem telling your friends about movies and restaurants? You won't remember the movie five or ten years from now. The food is gone. Jesus is eternal. But we will not be motivated until our hearts are moved in repentance. And for some of you, this, this may seem bleak. Like daily repentance, really? But ultimately, this is the only way that we make progress in the Christian life. All of life as repentance means that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. And so if you want to know if you're following Jesus or not, just look at the regular sin patterns in your life and don't act like you don't have regular sin patterns. You know what they are. Look at the regular sin patterns in your life and look at the amount of time in which you go before you turn to God in repentance. And the, the narrower that gap becomes, the closer you are to Jesus and the more you are like Him and growing in Him. You want to know why? Because the narrower that gap becomes, the more you come to see that it's not about you. There's nothing you can do. And the more you're building trust with God and understanding He loves you. He loves you. Now, how do we distinguish between, I just want to end looking at a couple of potholes. How do we distinguish between religious penance and gospel repentance? 
Because some of you are so stuck in religious penance, you are not growing in the grace of Jesus. You aren't growing in the character of Jesus. In fact, you're stuck. You're dying in your faith. You're not bearing fruit. There's no real difference in growth in your life. And you can tell if this is the case for you, if following Jesus has become predictable or boring or a little bit of a chore. And my guess is that that's a whole lot more of us than we would like to admit at times. But all the while, we look back and remember moments in our life where there was nothing more important than Jesus. Right? Where we were hungry for Him. Where, where we wanted to get into His Word. And where, like, following Jesus and being with Jesus' followers was a, one of the priorities of our life. Like, we put it on our calendar and we moved everything else around that because we were excited about Him and we wanted to be with other followers of His. And He was at work. And we talked about what He was teaching us in our quiet time. And other people said, that's crazy because He's teaching me this too. And we learned from one another. Have you had moments like that? What went wrong? What changed? How have you gotten so lost? The good news is that repentance brings us right back to Jesus. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference in religious penance and gospel repentance? Religious penance. In religion, the purpose of repentance is to keep God happy. So He'll continue to bless you and answer your prayers. You ever feel that? Trying to keep God happy? Do you ever have these thoughts where it's like, man, God's not going to bless me because I did so and so. Man, I've got to do so and so so God will bless me. Am I the only one that has those thoughts? That's religion. In religion, we're mainly sorry for sin because it's consequences to us. We want to avoid the punishment of our sin. So in religious penance, it's an attitude that's deeply rooted in the human heart, which prompts people to attempt to pay for their own sins by good works and suffering. There was a, um, there was a reporter this last week, I saw a news article, who came back uh, to his local news station, and he had committed this kind of heinous act. And in talking about being so thankful that the news agency would have, have him back, he he listed all these different things that he had done. And he said, I've done a lot of volunteer work. <laughs> well, good for you, buddy. <laughs> like, we think that volunteer work changes us. We, we, there's all these different therapies that we try to work through in order to pay for some past sin that we've done. It doesn't work. But the problem is that penance looks and it feels more legitimate because it requires work on our part. And man, as Americans, like, this country's built on work, right? And so it feels like it's a real active faith. We're, there's work on our part. But it honestly insults grace. Because Jesus has already done all the work that's needed. Salvation in our lives, salvation cannot be absorbed in a Christian environment. And so 
I think one of the greatest ways in which the devil is at work, just fakery in the religious South, is using religious penance to try to convince us that we can come to know Jesus and that somehow salvation can just be absorbed in a Christian environment. That we can somehow just grow up into God. It's impossible. For people who say, I've just always known God. The Bible says it's not true. The Bible says you've always been an enemy of God. And so... One idea of religious penance is this idea that we can somehow, that salvation can be absorbed in a Christian environment. There's no such thing as growing into grace. We must be born again are the words that Jesus uses. Now think about that. One idea is I'm kind of walking through confirmation or or whatever that looks like in, in your Christian tradition and I'm growing into the grace of Jesus in order to one day come to know Him. That's religious penance. That's work on your part. That's information as if spiritual analysis of the Bible could bring you to come to know God. Jesus says that gospel repentance is like being born again. So let me just make it really simple. What did you have to do with your own birth? You got it. Nothing. It simply requires that we would say, lost, like Isaiah did. Lost, I'm undone. And that we would surrender. Penance always leaves the sinner powerless and imprisoned. Religious penance seeks out a human priest other than Jesus. Now, contrast that with gospel repentance. We realize in gospel repentance that our sin displeases God and dishonors Him. It's what caused David to say in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you alone have I sinned. Do you understand the irony of that passage? How crazy that passage is? Psalm 51 4? God, I'm so focused on you. I'm so, my heart is so for you. I see the sin that I've committed and against you and you alone have I sinned. He had murdered a man. He had committed adultery. A child would be born as a result. But David was so focused upon the Lord that he he saw how serious his sin was that he would say against you and you alone have I sinned. In the gospel, we are sorry for the sin itself, not just the consequences that the sin brings us. In the gospel, we're motivated by an obedient heart that's been changed by the love of our crucified Savior. Our actions aren't focused on a selfish life, but a crucified life that brings Jesus glory. When we begin to live lives of daily repentance, our lives shift from mainly seeking Jesus in order to have better lives... And our goal becomes that we would live obedient lives. That is the theme of a Christian. Christians have been so overwhelmed by the love of the Father that their goal becomes to live obedient lives. Not better lives. Now if you live an obedient life, I believe it will be a better life because it will matter for eternity. 
But it doesn't mean it will be the kind of better life that we often think about or that's described to us oftentimes. Repentance is scary and vulnerable, right? Repentance is really scary, but it results in refreshment and joy. So I want to end on this, and we're going to take communion together. As you think about repentance, I don't know what comes to mind. I think for most of us, uh, it's probably something like stop, or bad, or rules, or maybe what I should do, but what I don't really want to do. But I just want to declare that repentance is the first step of faith. Repentance is the first step of faith. That repentance and faith are like two sides to one coin. That it is impossible to walk by faith unless you turn and face the one that your faith is being placed in. And so you say, what comes first, repentance or faith? I don't know. It's kind of the same thing at once. Maybe repentance, but we're pursuing the flesh, we're pursuing the world, we're pursuing our selfishness and our sin. And as God grabs a hold of our heart and we make an about face, that act of turning is an act of faith and is the first step of faith. And you'll never live a daily conversational relationship with God unless repentance is the first step of faith in your life. And every time, if you think back, every time that you repent, every time that you say, God, I was lost. Remember, I was sitting down, I'm not going to sit down again, but when I was sitting down earlier, God, I was lost. Every moment that you've been at that kind of a helpless place, when you really turn to God, what did you experience? You experienced refreshment, you experienced joy. It's impossible to truly repent and not to experience joy. Why? Because you're facing your Savior. You're coming closer to Jesus. You're following Him. Life is good when our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Now, as we move toward communion, I want you to keep a couple of verses in mind. Acts 3.19 simply says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. The way we come back to Jesus is the same way we came to Him in the first place. In fact, if this hasn't been a daily rhythm for you, if repentance hasn't been a part of just your, your daily life, then you've likely walked far away from Jesus. It doesn't take far. I mean, if Jesus is here... And I'm just here, and I walk this way for a couple of years. How far am I from Jesus? But here's what's so good Jesus is in the habit of, in that moment where we come to know Him, He brings us right back to Him. Doesn't matter how far away, doesn't matter how long it's been, forgiveness and atonement in that moment is made. God is in the business of life change. People aren't changed by therapy. We're not changed by analysis. Not even biblical or spiritual analysis. We're changed by God. Jesus gives us what legalism can never do. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. 
Only Jesus can change our hearts. So here's what I want us to do. As we end today, um, we're going to split up in missional communities. We did this last week. If you're not part of a missional community, don't panic. It's no big deal. I know kids, it's the end of the day. It's 11.15. It's time for us to be done. Kids are going to be like thinking we're done. They're going to be running around. They're going to be loud. It's okay. So we're going to split up into missional communities. These are small groups that we meet in. If you're not part of a missional community, just find one that's close to you and you can join them. Um, We're going to take communion together. And so if you look at the end of your your pews, there are these small baskets. Communion is for followers of Jesus only. I don't know why you would want to... These wafers really don't taste that good, kids. So listen, kids especially and adults, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't surrendered your life to Him, followed Him in baptism... Communion is not for you, okay? It's just a bad tasting wafer. You don't want anything to do with it. It wouldn't mean anything to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, then this helps us to remember. Helps us to remember His sacrifice. So what I want you to do, the stewards are up here. Their MC can join them. Uh, My MC is going to be up here. And uh, actually, Richard's MC, let's do you over there. And then um, we'll do the Nasons, David and Meredith. Y'all help us out with the Nasons MC in the back. And... um, Ben and Jessica, if any folks want to group up with you, Jessica, in the back over here. And um, we just invite you. Come and remember. Have someone declare the gospel. And then we'll remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. And here's what I want you to do. Before you do that, I want you to just to... Maybe God has stirred your heart this morning. We didn't take time before to say, Hey, where's God been at work? How's God spoken to you? So what I want you to do is just to consider practicing what I wanted to call one word repentance. Maybe there's something that God has put on your heart as we've talked about this. And that God has said, you're walking this way. I want you to turn and I want you to come back to me. And, and just take a moment in your group. If anybody wants to declare, it might be, it might be as easy as uh, work, career, relationships, family. I don't know what it is. But something that God has put on your heart that you would practice one word repentance and you have someone declare the gospel, we'd remember Jesus' sacrifice for us and then we're going to sing one last song together. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and uh, we're going to end with one song. Uh, Yeah, if you would, uh, join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us not just a better way to live. God, you have given us life, life eternal and life abundant. God, thank you that it's your kindness that brings us to repentance. God, help us to grow in our trust in you. God, help us just so to remember, oh, how you love us. God, thank you for your love. May our actions and may our words and may our attitudes be motivated by a heart of love that you have given us, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray and that we sing. So we we close our our service out with a benediction. And this is not a a closure of the work of God. This is a closure of just the service itself of us gathering together. So if the life of the Christian is to be a life of repentance, then it doesn't end in these four walls. It continues. And his work continues. So let us, let us not, um, the temptation is to just say, okay, I did a good job. I mentioned a word. I listened and then kind of moved on. But God's, God's bigger than that. And so sit in what you heard this morning. Sit in, that, in, the, in the call to repentance and follow him the days and days to come. 
So if you guys would join me with a, with a, with a word, with a benediction from Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Mercy Hill Church, you guys are dismissed.